Genesis 1.27 says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Today we're going to talk about the creation of man and woman. Welcome back to the Doctrine for Doxology podcast. If you ever have questions or comments, you can email me, doctrine for that's the number four, doxology at gmail.com. And I'm on Instagram at the Real Bear Martin. So the creation of man and woman. This is a massive topic. I mean, there's there's a million different ways to to run with this. I have spent so much time uh, g- chasing down different rabbit trails of of directions to go. And so today, this will be kind of hitting some of the some of the high points here that we see with the creation of man. Now, they'll. It's kind of blended in, but next week, I'm mainly going to focus on what it means that man is made in the image of God. So the, the image of God type stuff will, will all be next week. This is just more, more basics, it's more of the basics of why God created man, why God created woman, um, how he did it, th- those types of things, just the, the very basics that the Bible gives us, okay? Um, so the first thing I want to do is read... Genesis 1, uh, starting in verse 26, okay? So it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image and after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. The first thing we got to address is this weird sentence at the beginning of 26, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. So God is speaking there, the one true God, singular God, yet there's plural pronouns being used. Now, you can read forever and ever and ever on different uh, <laughs> different interpretations of this, um, and so lots of opinions out there, but here is here is mine. I think what's happening here is that we are given a concept of plurality in unity, okay? And I'm going to explain more what that means in a second. But basically, Moses is writing this, and he is not fully aware of the Trinity. But as New Testament believers who have the whole Bible, we can read the New Testament. We we read of Jesus Christ, that, the, that when he came, that was the revelation of the Trinity, okay? So he comes as a man, but claims to be God. And his followers also affirm that he is God in the flesh. Uh, Thomas said, my Lord and my God, speaking to Jesus uh, for both of those. But Thomas also affirmed that there is he, there is only one true God, the God of the Old Testament, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so that's when we get into discussions of the Trinity, and you can look back at other episodes I've done on explaining what the doctrine of the Trinity is. Uh, anyway, what happens is I think that when we read the New Testament and we look back, there are areas in the Old Testament where we can see different aspects of the Trinity. And so I think that's what's happening here when God says, let us make man in our image. I do not think he is speaking to some sort of divine counsel. That's a, um, an opinion out there. Uh, the reason for that is because when we read the next verse, it says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. 
So we're back to singular pronouns. If God was was truly talking to a a divine council, if you will, of all these different beings, then you would expect the pronouns to be uh, plural all the way through. But rather, God creates man in his own image. So there is only one true God, um, but in in some way there is a, a plurality in unity. And I think, again, this is supported by the last phrase of verse 27. It says, male and female, he created them. So listen to all of 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. That's all singular pronouns. But then male and female, he created them. So there's a plurality in unity. Uh, we we see this in the Shema, okay? In in the Shema, that's Deuteronomy six four. Every devout Jew, you know, well, devout Jews, I guess, still say it, but the uh, they would have said this every day when they woke up. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Okay. Now, John MacArthur talking about that verse, the Shema, he says this: the intent of these words was to give a clear statement of the truth of monotheism, that there is only one God. Thus, it has also been translated, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. The word used for one in this passage does not mean singleness, but unity. The same word is used in Genesis 2.24, where the husband and wife were said to be one flesh. Thus, while this verse was intended as a clear and concise statement of monotheism, it does not exclude the concept of the Trinity. So once again, when we when we read the New Testament and look back at the old, we can see these these concepts of the Trinity. They're revealed. It's kind of like uh, James White, I think, described it as you're trying to walk around a room with all this stuff in it, and the lights are off, and you may see little you know, little shadows of, of furniture or whatever, but when you turn the lights on, you see it. Now, you're in the same room. Every All the stuff, all the furniture was, was there the whole time, but now with the light on, you see it better. And that's kind of what the New Testament does for the Old Testament. It, it shines the light on some different things there, okay? And so that's, um, that's, I think, what is happening here when it says, let us make man in our image, okay? Now, the next thing I want to cover here is this, uh, it's called the creation mandate or the cultural mandate, different different ways of referring to that. And so uh, it's verse 28, Genesis 1, 28, and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So I think there's three parts to this creation mandate. The first is a blessing, okay? God blessed them, and then he's going to give them two commandments. That's the second and third part, be fruitful and multiply, and then also to have dominion and subdue uh, the earth, okay? So first off, the blessing. What does it mean that God blessed them? Several years ago, I was able to watch a free video series uh, that that was put on through Dallas Theological Seminary, and basically it was just a recording of a seminary class on Genesis. So it was several lectures, and I really I don't remember the professor's name, but I I did enjoy this uh, free course that they offered, and I remember him talking about this this phrase because I have notes in my Bible referencing this. That uh, when he talked about what does it mean that that God blesses someone, what does it mean to be blessed? And his definition was to bless is to confer 
fullness of life, okay? So if something is a blessing to you, in a way, it gives life to you, a, a, a fullness of life, a more full life, if you will. So someone that blesses you, it, their blessing, that may, be an, that may energize you or encourage you or help you. Think about like if, if you're uh, in a tough financial time and you can't pay rent and someone gives you some money to, to help you, that's a blessing. That, that gives a fullness of life. Obedience to God brings blessing. I, I'm not talking about prosperity gospel type of blessing, but a man and woman who are faithful to each other and who raise their children according to the Bible will have a fullness of life that that non-believers who are in a an unfaithful marriage will not have. There there is a richness to life when we live the way that God has for us, okay? Psalm 1, 1 and 2 said says blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So I, I think here, I think that's a great definition by that professor. Of course, he's a professor, so he's he's a pretty smart guy. But to, to confer a fullness of life. And that's the way we have to think about the commands that God gives us. Because the, the next two things as, as part of the creation mandate are commands, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, and also to subdue it and have dominion. Okay? Those are commands, but those commands from the Lord are wrapped up in a blessing. It is a blessing to obey the commands of the Lord. The cultural or creation mandate here is not supposed to be a burdensome task. It is a blessing to fulfill. There will be fullness of life in this blessing, okay? Now, yes, because of sin, there there are difficulties now, but it is still a blessing because God said the same thing to Noah, and God blessed Noah. This is Genesis 9-1, and God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And of course, he gave Noah dominion, okay, over the, over the earth. So this is still a blessing, even though we live in a sinful world. Uh, the, the second part, of course, is to multiply, be fruitful, and this command is linked with the next command to subdue and have dominion over the earth. It, we will need to, humans will need to multiply in order to properly govern and, and have dominion over the earth, okay? So they were to, to uh, Adam and Eve were supposed to have dominion over the earth, to cultivate it, to to provide for the earth to flourish. Okay, so that was their that was their original task given by God. Also, subdue does not mean abuse. This is not some sort of selfish exploitation. Okay, uh, we are like the like a head servant who is given responsibility of maintaining our master's house. The head servant seeks to beautify the master's property. He he desires things to to run properly. He de- he desires the grounds to be well kept. Um, so so this is our this is this is what it means to subdue, to to bring into order, to um, to help along, to provide for flourishing. This is not a word that's talking about well humans are just supposed to take it take. Um, advantage or abuse the earth in some way for our own personal gain. Okay, um, so this is this certainly is was would be a God honoring way of subduing and having dominion over the earth. Now that is that is the basics there in Genesis one, and now we switch into Genesis two. 
Now, they are not separate creation accounts, but they're they're different. They have different emphasis, okay? So Genesis 1 is more general, kind of broad, and Genesis 2 is more localized and, and personal, okay? Genesis 1 emphasizes God's transcendence in creation, and Genesis 2 emphasizes God's Eminence, his his presence in creation. He's going to walk with Adam and Eve in the in the cool of the day. He's he's going to uh, give Adam a specific command. He's interacting with with Adam on a more personal level. That's the that's the creation account in Genesis two. That's that's the the view that it gives us, the camera angle, if you will, of uh, that that it gives us with creation. Also, one thing I want to point out is that in Genesis one. The Hebrew word for the creator there is God. That, that's the word Elohim, okay? So God is the creator. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's Elohim. In Genesis 2, again, because it's it's a more personal account, more localized, it, it emphasizes God's eminence, then you're going to read the Lord God as the creator. The Lord God did this. The Lord God did that, okay? And so it is that is Yahweh Elohim or Jehovah Elohim, okay? And so that that's the Yahweh or Jehovah or the Lord in all capitals in, in your Bible. That is the covenant personal name of God. And so this this is a it's a more personal account. Okay, so that's that's the way we have to think about Genesis one versus Genesis two. It's not two separate accounts, it's just different camera angles. Okay. One's one's way up high and one's zoomed in. Now, um, the when we read about the creation of man in in Genesis two, I'm going to start out in verse seven. So Genesis two seven. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Okay. So in Genesis one twenty seven, we're simply told God created man, and then male and female He created them. In Genesis 2-7, we have more specifics. God formed the man from the dust of the ground. So this verb, formed, refers to skilled work. And so in the, the rest of the Old Testament, if the context is talking about clay and a potter, then it, it uses this verb formed, but it's talking about the skilled work of a potter or an ironsmith or blacksmith as well. So this is this is a skilled work. The Lord skillfully, wonderfully uh, you, creates man out of the dust. Now, there is a Hebrew play on words here. And so in, in verse 7, it says, the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground. But in Hebrew, man is Adam, and that's where we get the word Adam, and then ground is Adama. okay? And so really, it, it's a little play on words. It's kind of like saying God formed earthling from the earth, or God formed the dirtling from the dirt, okay? And so that's what's going on there. Now, funny story about being made of dust or dirt. My daughter, during her fifth birthday, we were riding home. This is my oldest daughter. So during her fifth birthday, we're riding home, and we had this like big bouncy slide for her birthday, and she scratched her arm going down the slide one time. And so on the way home, she's she's telling me about how she scratched her arm. She's showing it to me. And she's telling me that she was that she didn't cry though. She's kind of bragging that she didn't cry even though she scratched her arm. And I, I replied, I was kind of going along. I said, That's because you're you're brave, aren't you? You're you're tough. And she said, Yeah, and, and kind of in a classic 
um, it, it, just the way she speaks, it's very matter of fact. She's like, yeah, that's because I'm made of dirt. <laughs> so, uh, early apparently, and so I, it just made me laugh. And so I asked her and apparently earlier that day, she had been talking with my wife about what God made us from. And my wife said that God made us from dirt. <laughs> so, so if you know my wife too, you'll know that that's funny. Cause she is very straight to the point. Like I can see that's how, that's probably how the conversation went. It was probably that quick. Hey mom, what did God make us out of? And my wife goes dirt. And then that was it. <laughs> Anyway, so uh, as I was as I was researching this uh, lesson, I actually typed in that story and linked it to the verse. I used computer notes, a, a Bible program called Logos Bible Software, but you can add in different notes. <clears throat> and um, so anyway, I hadn't thought about that story in a long time, but I had linked the verse, uh, linked that story to that verse, and so that's a really uh, cool way of making some family memories if you, you know, as you're uh, writing in your Bible and stuff like that and can help you remember stuff. Anyway, so that's a little side story. But does does man being made out of dust, is that something special or is that, does, should that humble us? Okay. Does, is that, is there something special about that? Well, I would say no. And, and people will argue, as I'm reading different commentaries, uh, there's differences of opinion on this, but I would say no, because God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air from the ground. In Genesis 2.19, it says, now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. So man's formed from the dust, the animals have been formed from uh, out of the ground, and so this is. I think this is um, meant to tell us that we are created beings like every everything else. Okay, now I'm not. Don't worry. I'm not saying that that humans are just animals. We we are special in a way, and I'll get to that point in a second. So man, I do not think is special because he was formed from the ground, because other animals were. The other thing that Genesis 2-7 tells us about the creation of man is this, God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Now, what's important to understand here is that life comes from God. It is it is God breathing into us that gives us life. So the materials in nature alone do not give life. Life comes from God, okay? And this is just a basic truth that the Bible demands that we know. Job 33, 4 says, the Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. So the fact that God breathed into man's nostrils and gave him the breath of life, does that make man more special than all of the other created things? Well, this is where it gets really tricky because I I've <laughs> spent a ton of time actually uh, researching this, and there are still different opinions. Now, the here's how the argument goes: the the verse Genesis two seven, when it says that God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, the breath there of when it's that that phrase the breath of life, the word for breath is different than what's typically used of the breath that all animals have. And so some people would 
would say this here is a special type of breath and 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 then even and and then some would say this even more so is like a spiritual breath and this is what gives man his his soul or his spirit okay um now the other uh, there's other commentators that say this is just a word that's used for breath of life but it it can be kind of interchanged with other words so it's also used that same word is compa- is is combined with another Hebrew word for breath and it's used in Genesis 7:22. This is again talking about the the flood Noah's flood. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. So it's it's used there and this is certainly talking about everything on dry land, all creatures, not just mankind, okay? Uh, so there's there's different arguments of is this breath a special breath or is this like the 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 breath of life that every uh, living creature has and so that's um, I'll leave that up to you to <laughs> to read on your own as I read the different passages that use these these words I'm not convinced that this is some sort of special spiritual breath. I just don't get that as I'm just simply reading the text. Rather, I think what's being emphasized is that man is made from dust of the ground and God breathes life into him like everything else, but it is it is the position that man is given that makes him special. He is created in the image of God. Again, we'll talk about that next week, but he is given dominion over all the the animals and he names them. Um, and so that that's a that's a position of authority. So what makes man special is simply because God chose to create him that way, not because of some special material that he's made out of okay and so that's that's the uh the point i want to get across there and and then you know just to kind of um emphasize here that everything is given this breath of life from god psalm 150 verse 6 says let everything that has breath praise the lord and the, i think what's what's obvious in that statement is because that they get their very breath from god okay so that's kind of uh that's how man was made Okay, and now I want to talk about man's purpose. And again, this is a very, very basic level, high end, <laughs> uh, high view uh, type of type of thing. We're not digging down into the weeds, but in Genesis two, we learn about the roles of man and woman. Okay, Genesis two fifteen through seventeen. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Okay? So I think what's what's happening here, one way to look at this is that that man, or Adam, functions as prophet, king, and priest. And so that's what I want to show you here. Um, first off, as prophet, Adam is given. There, there's no at this time, woman has not been created yet, so there's no one else on earth. But Adam is given the words of God. Okay, he he's so he's in that way he's a a prophet of God. He is given the words of of God, and it is Adam's responsibility to pass this on. So in in that respect, he's a prophet. He's also acting as a king. In Genesis 1, mankind is given dominion over the earth, and in this way, again, we can think of him as king. 
Adam also names the animals. In the Bible, naming something indicates your authority over it. In a commentary I have on the book of Genesis, talking about this, it says, to confer a name is to speak from a position of authority and sovereignty. Okay, And then as an example, when Nebuchadnezzar conquered Judah, he took some of the brightest young men from the Israelites. The Hebrew names for, for three of these boys were Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. But you know them by their Babylonian names. Why? Because the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar, well, actually the servant working under Nebuchadnezzar, gave them Babylonian names, as if to say, you are King Nebuchadnezzar's possession now. You are Babylonian. You you are under his rule. And so their names are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the three uh, boys in the fiery furnace. Okay? So when, when, you, when you name something in, in, in biblical language, that's a way of having uh, displaying authority over it. Okay, Now, as Adam named the animals, God used this to show Adam he was alone. There was no companion for him. Okay, So we've seen that Adam is functioning as a prophet in a way. He's a king, but also he functions as a priest. And this one is, is I think, really important. And this was a lot of fun uh, looking up and, and researching and, and getting a better understanding of. Adam is functioning as a priest. In Genesis 2.15, it says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Okay, now these two verbs, work and keep, uh, certainly they're used lots of times, hundreds of times in the Old Testament, and they can mean just that, just general work or to cultivate, if if talking about gardening or, or working in the soil. So to cultivate it, to work it, to care for, to serve, okay? And this word keep is also translated to guard uh, or tend or watch over or observe, okay? So this is a, this is a, a guardian type of role, keeping uh, the garden. So in 1 Samuel 19, 2, this, this word is used, and Jonathan told David, Saul, my father, seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Okay, and guard theirs is the same as, as translated keep in Genesis 2. So keep on your guard. Saul is seeking to kill you, so be on your guard. That is what Adam was supposed to do in the garden. And and how so? So he's instructed to work and to keep the garden. So first off, he's supposed to cultivate the garden. He's supposed to, you know, help things grow and and he's tending the garden and then he's supposed to gardenize the rest of the world, be fruitful and multiply and and, and spread that throughout the the rest of the world. Now, in keeping the garden or guarding the garden, he was to protect it from any threats, such as a serpent who's questioning the certainty of the word of God. So Adam was a priest in the Garden of Eden. He was he was supposed to guard that sacred space. This is where, in the Garden of Eden, this is where he walked with God in the cool of the day. This is where the presence of God was. Just like in, in later in the Old Testament, we see the presence of God in the tabernacle and the temple. And the point I'm trying to make here is the tabernacle and temple actually point back to the Garden of Eden. So if you if you read up on the description of the tabernacle of or the temple, the Garden of Eden as well, they all have an eastward orientation. 
the in the tabernacle there's there's um there's pitchers of water where the garden of eden you had this river that flowed through the garden and then the river split up and and spread throughout um the the rest of the land okay and so in in the tabernacle you have water in solomon's temple you had this massive basin of water and, and other carts to carry water around so you have this this disbursement of water in the in the tabernacle and temple in the furniture and the design of the fabric you have you have fruit like pomegranates are mentioned in parts of the design so that certainly points back to the garden as well and so um so this is this is all representative of the garden of eden the tabernacle and the temple and so adam is is serving as a priest here another one here as i'm scanning my notes the lampstand represented the tree of life okay and so again just tons of different um different reflections of the tabernacle and temple pointing back to the garden of eden now after the fall we read in genesis 3 verses 23 and 24. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. So again, he was taken from dust out of the ground outside the garden, and God placed him in the garden, okay? So verse 24, he drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And so Adam is, is instead of working and keeping the garden, he is kicked out of the garden. Now he has to work from the ground from which he was taken instead of working in the garden, and, and he is no longer the keeper or the guardian of the garden. He has been kicked out of that, and now a cherubim is the one who guards the entrance to the garden. Guess what guards the entrance to the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle and the temple? The cherubim. Now, the reason that I wanted to, to label Adam here as a prophet, a king, and a priest is because Jesus Christ is prophet, king, and priest. Jesus Christ is called the last Adam, or, or sometimes referred to as the second Adam. And you can read about that in Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15. But Jesus Christ is the Word of God. Uh, he's certainly king, and he is our great high priest. And he definitely was a guardian of the temple. Think about when Jesus comes in and clears out the money changers. So, so he is the he is he is the great high priest. He fulfills all three of those roles perfectly. Okay, and so that is that is man's. That kind of wraps up what I want to say about man's basic purpose laid out here in in Genesis one and two. Now let's talk about woman's purpose. So again, Genesis one shows that men and women are equal in worth. Okay, God created them male and female. They're both created in the image of God, and the creation mandate applies to both of them. Both of them are supposed to be fruitful and multiply, and both of them are to have dominion over the earth, okay? So they they are both given that. Now, remember, in Genesis 2, we have a more specific, localized account. We have a little more detail. And so the only thing about creation that God judged to be not good was that man was alone, and we can read about that in Genesis 2.18. The New International Commentary of the Old Testament on the book of Genesis says this, quote, For the first time we encounter something that is not good, man's lack of a corresponding companion. The skies without the luminaries and birds are incomplete. 
The seas without the fish are incomplete. Without mankind and land animals, the earth is incomplete. As a matter of fact, every phenomenon in Genesis 1 and 2, except God, is in need of something else to complete it and to enable it to function. End quote. So, God brings these animals to Adam seemingly for two purposes. Adam was to name the animals, and I think this is a display of authority over them by giving them names. Um, also, he, God was using this to show Adam that he was alone. Genesis 2, 20 through 25 says, The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. All right? So, Several different things to to pull out of this passage. First off, woman is a helper fit for him. Now, helper can be viewed in, in today's culture. Some people would read this and automatically think in terms of a negative or, or maybe even like lower status. This is not the biblical view of woman as a helper that's fit for man. Again, the New International Commentary on Genesis, it says this, Any suggestion that this particular word denotes one who has only an associate or subordinate status to a senior member is refuted by the fact that most frequently this same word describes Yahweh's relationship to Israel. He is Israel's helper because he is the stronger one. Okay, and so th- this this word helper is it's not a negative term. First of all, also, woman is a helper fit for man. Now, this is translated different ways: a helper comparable to, a helper corresponding to, a helper just right for, or a helper suitable for. So this is this is the the perfect. Helper for man. Psalm 30, verse 10 says, Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. So again, here the Lord is called our helper. And behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. And so to be called a helper is, is not a derogatory thing. Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit in John 14 through 16 as the helper. Some in English translations um, give that, the, the helper, the advocate, the one who comes alongside you, okay? And so the, the Holy Spirit is also called a helper. Now, so, so woman is the perfect helper for man. We're also told in this passage that woman is from man. So God did not create another creature from dust. I think this is important. He creates the animals from the ground, and he he brings them to Adam. Adam names them. Adam is created from the dust. God doesn't reach over and get a new handful of dust and create woman. That would be two separate creatures. Rather, woman is created out of man. God, you know, <laughs> I heard one guy say, God rips man in half and, and makes a woman. All right. So did, did the Lord God really use a rib of Adam to make Eve? Well, th- I think this word is translated rib 
mostly because of Adam's little poem afterwards. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. So I I think this is why it gets translated rib. Uh, But this word is used 40 times in the Old Testament and Almost every time, it's used to describe the side of something. So it is used to describe the side of the tabernacle, the side of the Ark of the Covenant, the side of a building, the side of a hill, side chambers, okay? And so this is this is the side um, in some way. And so um, so some translations say a rib, but I don't think it's just the the rib bone, okay? You can think of it more, again, like, like God is... is tearing man apart and making woman out of him okay so so man uh, excuse me so woman comes from man and again i think that's important because this is not a separate creature that adam is over this is bone of his bones and flesh of his flesh okay uh, she's a helper for him but she's also unified with him again plurality in unity now as far as authority, man names woman, and this is also a controversial topic as well. And so there's differences of opinion in in uh, man naming woman. Is that signifying that he has authority over her or not? Okay, so lots of different ways people will will go. Well, I guess there's only two, yes or no, but <laughs> lots of discussion in that. But notice that in Genesis two. Man calls her woman, and this is a very general description. But in Genesis 3.20, this is after the fall, Adam calls her Eve. And, and this is a, a specific name. This means the mother of all living or, or life giver. Okay, so uh, in in researching this topic, I came across an article written by Joey Cochran, and this is found on the Council of on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. So that's cbmw.org, and this article is titled "When Adam Named Eve." Okay, so in the article, he he summarizes here that biblically, Adam is responsible for the fall. Okay, so sin entered the world through one man, Adam. That's in Romans five. And, and Eve was deceived, but Adam was the one who ultimately was responsible. Adam was uh, what's called our federal head, okay? So he, he is responsible, and he kind of represents all of mankind. So he's the one that's responsible for the, the fall and the, the sin that was committed there. Now, when Adam is first questioned by God, after they eat the forbidden fruit— God comes to Adam first, okay? Adam is the one that's questioned. That's who God goes to first. And when Adam is first questioned by God, he blames the woman. After God gives the punishments to the serpent, the woman, and to man, Adam finally takes responsibility. And so uh, Joey Cochran says this about this event. He says, Adam naming Eve conveys his authority over her and in turn over all the living. His naming of her not only represents his commitment to his commission as head, but also confesses his faith in God's redemptive plan. As mother of all living, Adam knows she is the mother of the redemptive seed that will crush the head of the serpent. And and that's found in Genesis 3.15, kind of the first hint at the gospel. Let me read this here, Genesis 3.15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. 
Okay, and so this is this is what Adam is is or or this is what Joey Cochran is talking about when Adam hears this. He later is he's God is going to pronounce judgments on Adam, and then it's Joey Cochran's belief that this is when Adam takes initiative. When he names Eve, he's saying, "Yes, I am the one who has authority here." Okay, but I, I'm also taking responsibility, and I'm gonna and and he names Eve. Not it's Eve's no longer a curse to him. Okay, so when when God comes to him and says, "Why did you eat the fruit?" He blames Eve. It's 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 almost if God, I would have been better off without this woman. Okay, but later on when he says, "I'm gonna name her Eve," God has has promised that her seed will crush the uh, crush the head of the serpent. And so when he names her Eve, he say, you are the mother of all living, or you are the life giver, okay? So by naming Eve, he claims responsibility for his sin. He is the head of that household, um, and, but, he, and it, but he also is calling her a blessing. She is the life giver, okay? And so that's kind of the argument that Joey Cochran made, and I'll leave a link to that article in the show notes. But I thought it was, it was well-written and... and um, and a good way of thinking about all of that. Now, another thing with this passage of of God creating woman, the Lord brings the woman to the man, and we have basically the first marriage in the Bible. The two are joined and become one flesh. And then we have this verse, Genesis 2.24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So in closing here, God created male and female in his own image, and God uses that relationship in different ways to reveal himself to us. Throughout Scripture, this this picture of male and female, especially marriage, teaches us different different things about God and and relationships. So so God uses this male and female, man and woman, husband and wife. It, it's a, a picture that God uses to teach us. And I think one of the the best examples of that is in Ephesians 5. This is a lengthy passage, Ephesians 5:22 through 33. But this will this is how we'll close out this episode. There's some ties back into the creation of man and woman, and so that's why I've chosen this one. Here we go, verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself." For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Thank you.